0: This is the MDT Podcast. A podcast for all healthcare professionals working with older adults. We are a multidisciplinary team educating about ageing. MDT.
1: The MDT is brought to you by the Hearing Aid Podcast team. We focus on a different topic each week to work with you to enhance your knowledge, to help you look after older people and welcome to this episode of the MDT podcast. I am Dr Joanna Preston and I work at St George's Hospital in London.
0: Dr Joanna Preston and I am Dr Ian Wilkinson and I work at East Surrey Hospital in Redhill. So coming up this week we are going to talk about depression, mm-hmm. we're not going to talk about the Mental Health Act and we have a new MDT's a clue for you Yes. For the same item as last time. And remember, that is your chance to win a limited edition MDT mug. And you need to listen all the way through the episode to get to that. Don't skip to the end.
1: end. So Ian's told me that I have to say that for me this week, he's got some marvellous clues. Your guess is as good as mine, kids. The MDT Podcast.
0: So we've had some feedback, Joe. Yes. Um, I think, how should we do the feedback? Well, should we do it in three sections? why not okay so the first section is what i am going to call where you listen to the podcast
1: i uh, like this yeah
0: so we have anne Deschong, who uh, works over in canada i yeah. think and she listens on her way to work
1: we have yvonne oriodin who says she listens when she's doing the ironing she hates the ironing but these help
0: yeah, it's a good good place to. I listen to a lot of stuff when I'm doing the ironing. Um, and then the the third is I on the way up here this evening. I tweeted if somebody could tell us how they listen or where they listen. And Vince Meeker got in touch, and he listens in his on his commute in his car in the car classroom.
2: What's a car classroom?
0: So it's listening whilst you're in the car, learning uh, whilst you're whilst I see, you're commuting. I, see. I thought it was a really nice idea. Next category. Next category is about the UTI episode. Mm. So we have Ines Hund, who really liked the approach that we set out and agreed with us that urine dipsticks are pretty useless in diagnosing UTIs but can be useful for managing patients with a urinary incontinence. Yeah,
1: that's right. It's part of the assessment.
0: And then Natalie King, who is one of the acute medical consultants uh, at East Surrey Hospital where I work, and I'll read you her tweet. It says, hooray! Too many think of UTI as an easy option diagnosis as a cause for everything in the elderly. And then the third category, yeah, I guess was just the most interesting thing from Twitter this week.
1: Ah, yes, it was a nice little frailty video, wasn't it? It was, there?
0: yes, yeah, and that was from Des O'Neill, um, his geriatrician over in Ireland. Yeah, and so if you look at our Twitter feed. We've retweeted that so you can find that.
1: Yeah. It's quite a nice, simple introduction to someone who maybe doesn't have that much of a background in geriatric medicine or uh, maybe works with older adults in a less kind of uh, professional capacity explaining what frailty is in its broader sense. Yeah. So it's really nice. So if you have any other resources that you want us to share that you think would be useful for other listeners, then do let us know. And also let us know where you're listening, how you listen. Tweet us at MDT underscore podcast, or you can email us if you want to be shy about it or use our Facebook page, which is facebook.com forward slash MDT podcast. The MDT podcast. So the faculty contributing to this episode are Pam Trangmar, who's a physician associate at East Surrey Hospital, Tracy CK who is an occupational therapist in Brighton University and Vicky Osman-Hicks who's a psychiatrist down in Southampton.
0: As with everything we talk about on this podcast, depression in older adults will mean something slightly different Mm. to each member of the MDT. So this week we've gone to an MDT in one of our hospitals to ask them what the topic means to them.
2: I'm Kim, I'm a nurse at one of the hospitals in London. We often see older people come into our department with depression. Uh, they don't always present as being low in mood. We might pick them up because they are self-neglect or they've lost interest in activities. We've referred them to clinics and they haven't attended or um, partaken in any therapy. We might also uh, identify um, depression in older people as um, a lack of interest in their normal um, Interests such as reading, cooking, looking out themselves, watching television, engaging with their families and um, such. So that's how we identify sometimes older people with depression in our department. My name's Claire and I'm a dietitian. Some of the ways that I might encounter depression in my daily role is um, in behaviours around food. So, for example, you might see aversion to food, lack of appetite, loss of interest in favourite food... Food tends to be very social as well, so if you take away um, perhaps someone's situation and they're not able to get out to day centres or have their usual friends around for food, then there's a lack of reason to eat. Also, things I might pick up in my assessment, holistically, somebody engaging with me, do they want to make eye contact, do they want to have a chat? It's also so physically what you might see, so for example, has somebody been losing weight? Is jewellery hanging off? Have we got loose clothes? So the the key to sort of focusing on your assessment is that, yes, my agenda as a dietitian might be food, but it's actually in questioning around other things that can get the key information um, about why somebody's not eating or what else that's going on in their life that is significant to their their needs and what's on their agenda. So, as
1: with each episode, we start with the definition. So, what is depression?
0: One of the definitions that I think we're going to go with today... Mm Is that depression is a disorder marked by great sadness, apprehension, feelings of worthlessness and guilt, mm-hmm. withdrawal from others, loss of sleep, appetite and sexual desire, as well as loss of interest and pleasure in the usual activities and either lethargy or agitation.
1: It's quite a comprehensive yeah. thing, isn't it? And it's quite clear that there's quite a constellation of symptoms and that's something we're going to talk through. There's another definition that we're going to add in there as well from Lichtenberg in 1998, which kind of uh, focuses things on some of the things we see in old adults a little bit more. So it says, It may be the result of illness and or physical changes associated with old age, or it may also be the result of experiencing difficulty in adapting to new or changed circumstances, stress, changes in social relationships, loss and social adjustment, particularly in old age.
0: I think that really sings true, doesn't it? About yeah. you know, it is this thing that is present in younger adults mm. um and is also present in older adults, but the causes in older people may be subtly mm. different Let, from in from in younger adults. That's something
1: people. that we're gonna explore a little yeah. bit later, but the triggers may be different. So uh, if we go to a kind of standard I C D ten definition, this kind of helps to kind of quantify things a little bit. We're not we've never really been big fans of sort of numerical definitions of things have we
0: no not really no but i think sometimes it's useful just to have a,
1: a framework a framework in mind yeah of how to do it and so the icd-10 uh splits it into quite nicely sort of 10 symptoms really um, but the first three are the most important because you have to have one of those present and those are a persistent sadness or low mood and or loss of interests or pleasure or fatigue or low energy and those have to be present most days most of the time for at least four weeks And if you have those, then you go on to ask about another seven things of associated symptoms. And those are disturbed sleep, poor concentration, low self-confidence, poor appetite with weight loss, suicidal thoughts or acts, agitation or slowing of movements, guilt or self-blame.
0: And those 10 symptoms, when you put those, the first three, which are like the core symptoms Mm -hmm. and then the, the other seven, which are like the extras, you can use to define the degree of depression. Yeah. And then, from that, you can go on and have a think about the management that you'd you'd go on to use, depending on how sort of the degree of the depression, and particularly, you've got to have these symptoms of low mood present for most days for at least four weeks and so really, if someone's got less than four symptoms, mm. you'd say that they're not depressed
1: yeah, but by the i c d ten classification
0: yes. four symptoms would be mild depression, mm-hmm. five to six would be moderate, and then seven or more would be severe depression, and that Mm -hmm. could occur with or without psychotic symptoms. Mm -hmm. And psychotic symptoms are when someone loses touch with sort of the normal course of reality.
1: Mm. So, pleasingly, NICE agree with us that uh, a comprehensive assessment of depression should be made, and it shouldn't simply rely on a symptom count, but should take into account the degree of functional impairment or disability that people have from this.
0: Yeah, and... Also, on comprehensive mood assessment is part of our comprehensive geriatric assessment.
1: Absolutely. And
0: it really does affect the quality of somebody's life Mm. or the perception of their quality of life.
1: Mm. I think it's one of those things that doesn't necessarily spring to mind quite quickly with the CGA, but actually feeds into so many different areas and has impact on and by so many areas in the comprehensive geriatric assessment that it really is cool whether you label it mm. or not. So what we're going to do now is talk through how medical assessment or that kind of comprehensive assessment can identify things that really do influence mood.
0: And if you're not sure what we mean when we're talking about comprehensive geriatric assessment or stop comprehensive where you assessment, are right stop now. where you are and go back to episode one of the first series where we lay it all out.
1: All right, so first off, uh, we're going to start with polypharmacy. Harking back to yet another episode that we did on delirium. If you're on lots of medications, there's a high chance that you may have a high anticholinergic burden, which may interrupt your normal thinking, and that in turn can then affect your concentration. So that can make someone seem like they are not able to follow a conversation or not interested, but actually they're just finding it difficult to follow.
0: Yeah, and that in turn can lead on to sort of actual depression. Because they can't In keep itself. up with conversations, yeah. Yeah. And um, I think fatigue is important. Yeah. Uh, it's something that we, you know, we pick up on the comprehensive geriatric assessments, and and it may present to all sorts of different people. Mm-hmm. And fatigue can be caused by a whole host of things, but sort of commonly occurring things are anemia, mm-hmm. cardiac failure, chronic kidney disease, poor sleep because they may be caring for somebody else. Yeah. Pain might be limiting them. Mm-hmm. You know, if you are trying to walk, if they've got severe osteoarthritis, that might be a limiting factor. Or if they're breathless. You know, mm. and the classic thing, I guess, is patients with COPD who get breathless and then really, really sort of get this overwhelming fatigue that comes with it sometimes.
1: Mm. And then that kind of limits their their world and what they're able to do. So, kind of lots. There are lots of physical things that overlap with kind of psychological symptoms. There is actually
0: um, a, um, and I'll, I'll put it in the show notes. There is a version of the. Frailty cycle that has been drawn that has mood and yes. cognition sort of wrapped around the side, and you can see how much it really does influence yeah. somebody's degree of frailty. Yeah, and I'll, I'll stick that in the show notes.
1: And I can't remember whether we talked about this when we were doing the frailty episode, but some of the definitions of frailty we didn't like particularly very much, or I don't like particularly very much, because they neglect that social and psychological yeah. aspect of things. It's really important to. Everyone's day to day life. But anyway, we digress. Or actually focusing us back onto the psychosocial approach and um, looking at whether someone's lonely and whether they have social isolation. So, so they have long periods that they're at home alone by themselves. But actually, when they're with other people, they brighten and they uh, are much better. So is it the loneliness that's causing them to be low rather than an intrinsic depression within them? What about do they do well with support? So if they have people going in to help them, but they feel helpless if they don't have that, that might be a sign that there's something you can do to help that isn't a true depression.
0: I think we all as the MDT have a a duty to try and spot when somebody may be depressed. So in hospital, thinking about when somebody has a new disability Mm. or a new diagnosis, and whether or not there's something we can do to physically and psychologically support them through that adjustment. Yeah. And I think that That links in nicely to what NICE in their guidance, which is CG90, talk about us all being alert to the possibility of depression. And they say that anyone that could have depression, we should ask two questions. Mm -hmm. The first is, during the last month, have you been bothered by feeling down, depressed or hopeless? And the second is, during the last month, have you been bothered by having little interest or pleasure in doing things? And if someone answers yes to either of those, then you should go on and perform a mental health assessment. Mm-hmm. And if you're not the person to do that, then you should refer to the patient's GP or if you're their GP and they need more complex assessment refer on to a psychiatrist
1: yes anyone can pick these things up it doesn't mean that you're responsible then for doing the assessment it means flag it up to someone who can do it
0: yeah and there's a big overlap with anxiety yeah and generally as a rule of thumb if somebody's got anxiety and depression treat the depression first and often the anxiety either goes away or becomes much much less of a a a worry a thing
1: yes it's the depression that's driving some of the anxiety When looking at this kind of thing, you want to ask about whether people have had depression in the past or not. And one of the things we want to talk about now is whether depression in the elderly is a specific thing, a separate thing to depression in younger adults. I think the short answer to that is yes, sometimes, but sometimes not. So about 50% of people have early onset depression, meaning you have it in your younger adult life and you grow old with it and you happen to have depression again when you're older. And about another 50% of people have late-onset depression. And there's mixed opinion about the causes of of what that might be and there's some evidence for and against each of these, including whether it's a consequence of vascular disease. So if you've got Mm. some cerebrovascular disease or some small vessel disease, and that contributes. And there are a few studies that show that actually when you have low mood, if your cognitive function is impaired at the same time, you are more likely to go on to develop a dementia or some cognitive impairment in the future. So it's a little bit, what the cause and effect is there is a little bit unclear to be unravelled. But as you said, there are roughly half of people who have early onset depression and half have late onset. So we're going to talk a little bit about how you might differentiate the two because the way they present might be very similar. So... Uh, As we said, roughly half of people have early onset depression. So asking them symptoms, about symptoms and events in their past, even in their early adulthood, is quite useful. So ask them, did they previously have any depressive episodes? Have they previously had any manic episodes? Have they ever been admitted to a psychiatric ward or had psychiatric evaluation? And have they had any deliberate self-harm in the past?
0: Some of the symptoms that people get when they have depression in older life are different to to the symptoms you get in younger life. So, the symptoms that affect affect mm. are less prominent. So, that's sort of the way that you perceive someone from the outside, really. Mm. Um, some of the biological symptoms may be more prominent. Yeah. So, so sleeping, sleeping eating. eating. Exactly. The cognitive changes. Mm-hmm. We know that sometimes if patients become depressed, it can present like a cognitive impairment.
1: Yeah. Um, so, kind of pseudo dementia. Pseudo dementia, exactly. One of the ways that it might present in older adults is low motivation or participation in therapies or self-care and that might be the thing that actually triggers the concern in the first place which is less likely in younger adults because they're not needing that. But psychosis can still be part of the presentation um, and it's quite often in the differential for delirium but that that doesn't seem to change in older adults.
0: So generally I think when you think about someone with low mood Mm -hmm. I think there's sort of two or three groups One is what you could sort of say appropriately cheesed off.
1: That's fair enough.
0: It's fair enough. So if you've had a stroke or a recent heart attack, patients may well present with a reactive depression that is really very understandable. Yeah. (laughs) Something horrendous has happened. Mm. Um, Secondly, there are patients who have sort of their personality.
1: He's trying to find a nice way to say that. Yeah. (laughs) They've always been a bit grumpy. Yeah, always they're been now a bit more grumpy. grumpy. Yes, yes. And it's difficult to tease those out, isn't it? And in the first group, you kind of have to give them time and see. And you, as everything comes back down to history, so in the, the appropriately cheesed off person, were they quite happy before? Something understandable's happened. Just give them some time. Whereas if someone's always been a bit grumpy, that might little be a little bit harder. Maybe someone to keep a watchful eye yeah. on.
0: And I think you have to really think about... What And I'm sure we'll, we'll touch on this later, but where somebody is on that line mm. as to what treatment you're going to give. There's some good studies out there looking at sort of meta-analyses of some of the antidepressant use. And, you know, if you blanketly treat everyone that has depressive symptoms with antidepressants, you don't help. No. You have to target them to people that will help and you have yeah. to support them with the cognitive behavioural therapy yeah. and some of the talking therapies at the same time.
1: Yeah. So just being a bit grumpy is not quite there. There are a couple of other really tricky areas as well um, that we're just going to touch on briefly now. One is hypoactive delirium versus depression. So being quite sleepy, being quite withdrawn, not really interacting. Um, And that's something that really you're looking for. Do they have a cause for a hypoactive delirium? If so, you just need to give it time and see if there's any doubt about that, you kind of just watch and wait. So flag it up if you're in hospital and, and they're being discharged, flag it up to community care providers, GPs, anyone that might be looking after them, just to kind of see. And if it's hyperactive delirium, it will get better.
0: Uh, the second is patients where they've got a low mood and no previous history, so it's yeah. just brand new. It can be quite difficult to diagnose sometimes. Mm. Um, it could be the current situation. It could be, as we said, a reactive depression related mm-hmm. to something that's just happened and again, refer on to the GP, Community Psychiatric Services, to monitor and have a sort of a, a think over a longer period of time.
1: Thirdly, you've got natural grief at loss of function, which is uh, something that we see quite commonly. And it's really difficult to mm. to, to know what to do with sometimes. As sometimes people say, well, I can't do the things I used to do and I'm 95 and I'm going to die soon and... And that's that. And they are appropriately sad at that and can feel very, very low. And that's kind of understandable, um, but can be quite severe as well. Mm. So that's a really a difficult situation I've found quite a few times, really.
0: And I think the other difficult situation is when people have low mood in the context of dementia. Yeah, absolutely. Because we, you know, apathy is distinctly a feature of dementia. Mm. I personally find it happens more in patients with vascular disease. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's true. It's just something I seem to see. It's really difficult, you know. Yeah. Uh, whether or not someone's got an overlying depression, either because they've got insight into their dementia or not, you know.
1: Yes, yeah, so teasing um, that apart could be really difficult, really difficult, can't yeah. it? And, and again, again, sometimes that's watching and seeing. Yeah,
0: and knowing the past history, yeah. knowing your patient. Yeah. Talking to the relatives sometimes helps.
1: And the other difficulty with low mood in the context of dementia is that it can be very difficult to treat depression if someone has dementia as well. and They may not respond to treatments in the same way. And there was a study which was, you know, they, they named the studies well. So this one was called HTA-SAD with two Ds. And that looked at placebo and two of the commonly prescribed antidepressants, um, and this is in the context of people with dementia, they found no difference in any of the groups. So, placebo or either of the antidepressants at 13 or 39 weeks.
0: And those antidepressants were sertraline mm-hmm. and metazapine. Yeah. Which um, are probably the two commonest, maybe with the telegram that we use.
1: Yeah. And that was in a group of patients with Alzheimer's dementia.
0: And that was in The Lancet from 2011. It was. And as with all the references, it'll be in the show notes. Yeah. When you're seeing patients in hospital, mm-hmm. there are a couple of assessment tools that are useful to, to try and sort of quantify and and objectify something. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, um, there's the geriatric depression scale, mm-hmm. which is either a 15 or a 30 point scale that you go through with the patients and they answer yes or no to each statement, mm-hmm. and that's sometimes useful to tease out some of the symptoms. And the other one is the HADS, which is the Hospital Anxiety and Depression Score, which gives you two scores really, one for Anxiety symptoms and one for depressive symptoms. Surprisingly. Yeah, it's funny that. And then, you know, you can you can use it to guide your assessment and guide your management of patients.
1: Yeah. And as we said before, these are all just um, kind of trigger tools, aren't they? So next we're going to start talking a little bit about interventions. We are going to talk a little bit about drugs towards the end, but we are going to talk a bit more about other therapies that might what, help.
0: what we as the wider MDT
1: can yeah. do. Yeah. Absolutely. So before we get into that, I'm going to talk uh, briefly about the diathesis stress model, which was um, proposed by Gatz in 1996. And that describes the relationship between challenging events and stresses and the circumstances in which depression may then go and develop. So there may be challenging events in someone's life, like loss of family members, loss of a spouse, Um, some distressing home circumstances, some chronic physical illness that they may be suffering from. And that can then be compounded by that individual's liability to illness and high levels of stress. And that increases their level of vulnerability to developing depression. So psychosocial intervention is really trying to look at some of those challenging events and some of those vulnerabilities that people have to um, target treatments to try and alter those as a means of improving mood. So it gives them an opportunity to practice social skills, in a safe environment, for example, that's quite non-judgmental and accepting.
0: So, Like OT-based mm. interventions using group therapy uh, where people are learning a new skill in a, in a group, something like that?
1: Yeah. Or something like uh, CBT, so cognitive behavioural therapy. And that does work in older adults. And I think this may be me being a bit hospital-centric. We don't usually use it in hospital um, because it's not a service that's around but we are going to give you some tips in a minute of um, some basic CBT that all healthcare professionals can do regardless of where you're working but it really does work in older adults and I think probably GPs and people working in the community will have more experience of this and see this working.
0: And there are some computer-based CBT available, things like Mood Gym, Yeah, there are others. There's and kind there's, of
1: mixed evidence for that. isn't yeah. there, benefit over standard GP care, but it works for some people, so it's probably worth a try.
0: I guess sort of mindfulness fits in there as well, yeah. and sort of giving people some skills to help manage situations a little bit at the yeah, time. Yeah,
1: by themselves, yeah. yeah. And so CBT works for mild to moderate depression and up, and the more severe the depression, the more likely drugs are to help, so... For most people in that early stage and even in the later stages, CBT can be really helpful. So CBT that we can all do. Four things. Four things. First one. Is activity scheduling. So this is something that particularly uh, an OT or nurses or the physios might do with people. So identify with the person a few things that they would like to be able to do and set targets for them in doing them and starting with the easiest. They must be achievable. It is not going to help if you pick the hardest thing on the list and say, let's do it by tomorrow. It can be as simple as making a cup of tea for your husband or your wife or having the motivation to unload the dishwasher, going out to post a letter, a short walk, um, phoning a friend for a chat, something that you might be nervous to do or have kind of withdrawn from doing, reading the newspaper. you know. So start really, really simple and work up to things that are, are bigger. So you can set that almost as homework, if you like, and then follow up on them. So say, okay, I'm going to see you again in a week or so. Ask them how they got on and how it made them feel and give them space and time to talk about that.
0: So that's activity scheduling. The second is sort of having a bit of a wider thought about what might help mood. Yes. Things like exercise, Mm -hmm. um, maybe physiotherapy if someone's got poor mobility. What can we do to help that? Analgesia, Mm. they've got back pain. Psychological education, and sort of yeah. formal CBT if someone's got a long-term condition. Yeah. You think about referring them on for that.
1: Yes, yeah, so some stroke rehabilitation perhaps, increasing confidence with the skills and things like that. Um, thirdly is getting families and other social support networks that that person might have and get them to be really supportive and encouraging of what they're trying to do, even if it seems quite small at the time, so that they can avoid undermining the approach by doing something for them or saying, well, that's just like, that's just such a small thing, you know, so that they're not taking that away from them. Because that might increase the feelings of helplessness or encourage that kind of sick role or illness behaviour that then reinforces their low mood and makes it worse again. So helping them to support them break the cycle is really important as well.
0: So we've got activity scheduling. Mm -hmm. We've got wider things that might help. We've got family support. And then the final one. Is some literature so recommending a book. Mm-hmm. Um, it's there are books available on prescription yeah. at most libraries. Yeah. Some examples are things like Mind Over Mood yeah. or Overcoming Depression. And there's a fact sheet and a list of the books from the Royal College of Psychiatrists that we will put in the show notes. Yeah. so head there and click yeah. on the link.
1: And the fact sheet is really good because it's aimed at both patients and relatives. So we are. Going to talk about drug therapies briefly now. And as we said, generally the more severe the depression, the more effective medications are, and that's from a meta-analysis in The Lancet in 2009.
0: Yeah. So much so that medications are not really recommended for mild no. depression or short-lived symptoms. So yeah. if someone is adjusting to a new diagnosis, it yeah. might be worth... they appropriately sort of, cheesed the, off. Yeah. Mm. Might be worth sort of trying to help them through that depending on the symptoms that they're getting.
1: Yeah, and there was a systematic review um, of refractory um, depression. So that was defined as failure to respond to at least one course of uh, treatment for medication during their current illness episode. And this was in older adults, meaning in this this terms of definition, over 55. And that found that there were no randomised control trials and unfortunately did Look at lots of different types of medication. The only drug that was studied more than once was lithium. However, it did show that about half of the people that had refractory depression did respond to a further medication. Mm. So it is worth, if something doesn't work, trying another medication because half the people will then go on to respond to it. So that's really important.
0: That's, I mean, that's interesting, isn't it, about the, the refractory and so that it doesn't always go away. Mm. But also, I mean, that study, you know, lithium—we don't. It's not something we use first, second line, mm. really, for treating depression, is it? So I wonder if there's a, a new study in there somewhere for somebody.
1: I think there's a new meta-analysis coming out, actually. Is there? Yeah. Ah,
0: check you out.
1: Vicky, the psychiatrist who helped us with this, has, has done one. Ah. And that's that's coming out soon. So.
0: Ah, cool. And the final thing is there are a small, and this is a small subgroup mm. of patients, that you've kind of worked up through your, your cognitive behavioural therapy. They've tried medications and they've not worked. And there are a small group of people that electroconvulsive therapy mm, ECT. Um, is used for
1: mm, and the commonest scenario that we tend to see this in is people who aren't eating and drinking yeah. so it's really about the risks because if you are going to have this treatment you have to have it under short anaesthetic and it's really it's a course of treatments you usually have it twice a week for between uh, six and twenty sessions it's a very effective treatment for depression but we only use it in the refractory cases where there's a risk to their life so a person not eating and drinking is the as we say, the commonest situation when we see that, and it's because there isn't enough time for an antidepressant to take effect.
0: And there are usually f- pretty rigid protocols in the psychiatric hospitals and the psychiatric community trusts about who can get ICT and when. And often they need an assessment by two psychiatrists to do that. So check out your local policies if that's something that, that you think. Some of your or just ask need, your, you know, ask your, your local old your psychiatry team if yeah. this is a
1: situation that you're encountering. I think asking that question can raise it yeah. raise it for them to to look at. Just jumping back slightly to um, antidepressants, take about four to six weeks to start to work. So that's where we're looking at yeah. life threatening a quicker, within that. It? So yeah. yeah, and that's because it can bring about really quite quick improvements in both depression and mania. And it's always followed by long-term medication to prevent relapse. So you're giving it because you can't wait for the medication to start working, but you start giving it so that it can pick up once once they have improved.
0: So we've talked through making a diagnosis of depression. Mm-hmm. We've talked through the ICD ten with the three symptoms and the seven yep. sort of other symptoms, and the severity of the depression. We've talked through broadly some things that we can all do. Yeah, and things that we can do.
1: Activity scheduling.
0: Consider wider things that might help the mood.
1: Mm -hmm. Getting family support involved.
0: And recommending a book. Mm. The links for that are in the show notes. And then we've then talked just briefly really about some of the common drug therapies and a tiny little bit about ACT. Absolutely. If you've got any comments about depression, Mm -hmm. if you want to make a recommendation for something we've not talked about, Mm -hmm. please let us know and contact us.
1: Any resources for the website?
0: Yes, you can now post them directly on the website. Mm -hmm. You just need to log in. And the website is Mm www.thehearingaidpodcast.org.uk and then follow through to the individual episodes
1: now. Yes, we've changed the website around. Let us know what you think of that as well. Uh,
0: You can also tweet us, and our Twitter handle is
1: at MDT underscore podcast.
0: And we're on Facebook, and it's facebook.com forward slash MDT podcast.
2: The MDT podcast.
0: And now it's the time of the week for our quiz. The MD teaser. This is a catchily titled MDT item guessing game. It is. So we're going to read a series of increasingly more simple clues about an item that a member of our MDT might use.
1: Who's going first this week? I
0: can't remember. And I, I, I said at the beginning when we were series two that we were going to keep a track of the score.
1: <laughs> no. On uh, the way here I was like, I, weeks, yeah, no, so, I can't remember. So
0: I don't know. So okay. Shall I go first? Go on then. Okay. So... Let me psych myself up. These were right. m- m- marvellous clues. Oh so each yeah, of these clues starts with the letter M. OK. OK. So the first clue, Joe, is it must be used with all patients.
1: Is it muscle?
0: It's not, but that's a good guess, isn't it? Thanks. Might be used sequentially. A weight? It's not a weight.
1: Is it related to weight? He's smoking. Third clue. <laughs>
0: mortality may link to the result of the item
1: mortality might relate to the
0: answer that the item gives you
1: mm, okay no next
0: it may go up or down
1: but it's not weight
0: it's not weight no this is an item
1: the weighing scales yeah yeah <laughs>
0: that was the fourth one
1: ah what was the fifth clue
0: fifth one was morbidly obese is detected by this okay,
1: yeah. they
0: were marvellous please
1: I mean they all began with them they all began with them yeah <laughs> okay so cool. starting a theme yeah, next week we're I all going
0: to mean... begin with something else are they no
1: you have to promise that now okay this item has a French name originally I don't know it has a high level of use in Japan
0: Horror seal no <laughs> Um, if you don't know what that means, you have to go back to series one.
1: You do. Um, it makes a noise like static.
0: A hearing aid?
1: It is not. No. no. It harks back to telegrams in its origin, but predates the telephone by 11 years.
0: Static noise. Is it uh, an echo?
1: It is not an echo. That's a good guess, though. Yeah. Final clue. Its use is otherwise peculiar to the NHS and certain countries where legal requirements make it a necessity.
0: I'm sorry. You know the last clue is meant to be the one that you go, oh, yeah, of course, I get it.
1: Honestly, this brings it together.
0: Tell me that clue again.
1: The last clue is its use is quite particular or peculiar to the NHS and in certain countries where legal requirements make it a necessity.
0: And it makes a noise like static. Yes. Hospital radio?
1: No. Fax machine, only NHS use it, but certain countries have high levels of use because actual signatures on paper are required. And apparently in and what Japan, does it make
0: that's not like static? Yeah, it is. Like da 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 it's like a modem. No,
1: but then it goes as it's transmitting.
0: I think we need some unofficial adjudication on this. I think if
1: you listen to that back, you'll 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 think that that's fair. Okay. Apparently in Japan, they just use it because they like it. Cool. So for the MDTs at this time, we realise that we've accidentally given you the same clue for the last two weeks. Sorry about that, guys. So this week, we are going to give you a, a larger clue that's a little bit longer to give you a little bit more information. So this item is actually a bit more of a tool and it uses lots of different bits of equipment. And one of those is a tray and another can come in several different forms, including gel, and it may be multicoloured. What do you think it is? Yeah,
0: so let us know uh, using the hashtag MDTeaser or you can tweet us at MDT underscore podcast or via Facebook, which is facebook.com forward slash MDT podcast or if you want to be a bit quiet about it, go through the website and you can email us through the website. And the website is www.thehearingaidpodcasts.org.uk.
1: So that's us for this time. Next time on the MDT podcast, we are going to be talking about foot health, which is a really interesting episode, something that's really relevant, um, but we don't often get much teaching on, so tune in then. And two weeks after that, we will be talking about nutrition.
0: And the MDT will reconvene in two weeks.
1: Dr. Wilkinson has previously received funding from Astellas and UCB Pharmaceuticals for delivering educational activities. The MDT Podcast is a Hearing Aid Podcast's Big Things Media production. Additional music by Kevin MacLeod. This podcast has been made possible from a technology-enhanced learning grant from Health Education
2: England, spreading education throughout Kent, Surrey and Sussex. For more information, visit thehearingaidpodcasts.org.uk.